and welcome to another episode of Nerds Amalgamated. I'm the DJ, and with me today I have Buck. Hello. How's it going, Buck? I'm fabulous. Is it because you just finished all your exams and assignments and you're just enjoying your holidays? I don't have exams, you peasant. <laughs> the joys of being post-grad. Yeah, I can't, can't argue with that. Uh, the uni lifestyle, what can you say? Oh, probably lots. Um, it's part of the, one of the requirements for my course. And with me today, I also have the professor. I'd hope so. I'm here every other week. <laughs> well, you're not always. How are you going, professor? Very well. Fun day at the office? Yeah, it was a bit rough. Telstra's being Telstra. <gasps> Great. Yeah. <laughs> He beat, he beat me to insulting someone and getting us on the watch list again. Hey, I'm not going to threaten to blow up Telstra. Nobody <laughs> clipped that. Well, I'm just going to be very upset with their call center technicians. Have you tried turning it off and on again? <laughs> <sighs> I will end you, Buck. <laughs> I will turn you off and make sure you never turn back on again. <laughs> Can you actually do that? Yes, it's called an axe. <laughs> an axe will stop anything from booting up. Are you saying you've got an axe to grind? Oh, no, nice already. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so Bucky, you've got a story about uh, facial recognition drones and how it can locate missing people. I do. Um, the Scotland Police, or Scottish Police. Uh, using AI recognition drones to help find people who go missing in Scotland. So, yeah, with people who are either tourists or children or people who are considered at risk, so um, the elderly with dementia, etc. Um, yeah, um, they they occasionally wander away from where they're supposed to be, and people lose track of them. And Scotland hasn't got the best of weather to be left outside and lost wandering around. So they've um, developed a system utilising drones that are remotely piloted and linking to a neural computer network to spot someone it is looking for from a speck of up to 150 metres away. Its recognition can be enough to be run on a phone with the technology learning as it goes, and yeah, it's expected it's going to save a lot of lives. I like how drone technology is slowly becoming more and more useful, because back then it used to be really annoying. Back then? What do you mean by back then? Well, I did recall once where there um, that people would use drones to be in, to make themselves like a nuisance. For example. During a, an international soccer game, someone flew in a drone and all of a sudden the soccer game erupted into a big, massive fist brawl and the, the match got called off in the end. Because someone flew a drone past. Uh, a drone into the field. Uh -huh. Like, did they attack someone with the drone? Why would they have a fight because someone flew a drone around? I think, See, they... I think the drone was just the excuse because soccer hooliganism has been around for a while. And can I just say, welcome, welcome to the, the, the old Grumpy Man Club. <laughs> I'm not old. Not you. <laughs> the, the, the curmudgeon complaining about 
I remember back way, way back when <laughs> someone flew a drone into a football game. <laughs> do, do, do you need to get some extra fiber in your diet now, Granddad? <laughs> no, I want you to get off my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> He's never I can't even afford a lawn. You're a uni student. <laughs> but yeah, I, um, they are trying to. There is a history where people have done stupid stuff with drones. I can remember there was a real estate agent who was taking photos of a property who used a drone to take aerial shots, ignoring the fact he was also taking photos into people's backyards and got photos of a lady sunbaking. It wasn't a pretty shot. But he went and posted the ad online and in the newspaper and so forth and it because it was an invasion of her privacy and showed her in a compromising position. Um, yeah, he got into a lot of trouble. But yeah, the police are saying, the Scottish police here are saying, well, Police Scotland. Why are they? That's one thing I can't understand. Why are they call themselves Police Scotland instead of Scotland, Scotland, Scottish Police? I think they're to avoid confusion of Scotland Yard. Yeah, just lends credence to Scotland Yard being decent. Oh, but, by um, the oh, by the way, guys, it was a Serbia versus Albania of, on the UEFA match where someone flew a political banner. Hang on, hang on. Yeah, see, those two countries, those, those two countries don't really need much of an excuse to go to having a punch up. <laughs> yeah, it's unfortunate, but the Baltics are the Baltics, and it was soccer fans. So you're basically piling more and more tension on top of each other. And flying a drone is like the. Are you, the are you trying to trying to say something about football? <laughs> Nothing. You didn't just say Buck. No, no, I didn't say anything about... I, I said soccer hooligans. I didn't say about football. You, you said football. <laughs> Did I? Yes. The hooligans okay. are a problem. It's not the sport. So, okay, so we string, string off the topic. But, um, yeah, it's... it's Okay, drone tech is good. Drone tech is good uh, in, in terms of helping, uh, helping the public. But do you reckon the recognition software is going to be useful? Well, obviously it will be. Uh, facial recognition software isn't new. Um, it's been utilised for well over a decade now. It's like, you remember they had the bombings in London? Yeah. With the train? Um, they were able to track the movements of all the people involved utilising um, facial recognition system, which is the reason why they caught pretty much everyone involved really quickly and then there yeah, was i think there was one person managed to escape the country before they were chasing them and but yeah it, yeah it's not new technology um i remember there was one of the random camera that sells to the u.s military i think it was that has pattern recognition to a level where it Formulates the pattern, like it recognizes, it has facial recognition, but it also pattern recognition. So it recognizes the pattern of the DCPUs, which is the disruptive camouflage pattern uniform. Um, and if there's a change in it, it notices that straight away. So if a person's walking down one stretch of um, alleyway in, on a military base and their uniform's all clean, and then they go through a blind spot and come out into another area and suddenly there's a stain on their uniform. It alerts um, 
appropriate people. So the fact that there's something there, if it's just a, an oil stain, it's just an oil stain. But if it's blood, they can investigate. So and, also- and it all, if you also um, follow a particular pattern of behaviour where you walk a particular way to go from building A to building D at the other end of the base every day for a week, and then on the, six, on the, on the next day you go out and you walk a completely different way, he takes notice of it and mentions it to the like raises a notice to the security officers watching, and that's a, the same technology that was used by the English authorities. And just so you know, we've got it here in Australia as well with the police services. You know, what's my brother was actually at a Chinese airport today, and there was a um, a webcam hooked up to a TV where you'd walk up to it, it would recognize your face and then display your flight info. Yeah. Nice. Then what the interesting part with this with with this drones is I wonder how many people how many people will attack that drone just to say, I don't I do not want to be found. Leave me alone. Well there are people who have been developing technology um that does take down drones such as um guns that shoot nets and then um, I think it was the, the Chinese we were talking about when we were talking about drones once before where they had um, EMP-style guns that were being developed to shoot drones. Yeah, there's a, um, a really interesting, uh, I think it's a DEF CON talk about taking down like civilian drones. This guy basically bought a, dr- a couple of drones and tested them to see how he could hack them and disrupt them. Mm-hmm. But uh, the government drones are presumably going to be harder to hack well depends on um the basics of the systems like there's so many different um points that you can access to uh, just trying to find think of the right word here breach the security of the um systems for drones because they're being operated wirelessly you have that plus there's also the video surveillance feed and lots of other things like that so and then you have them operating as part of the team which if you're talking government security drones um yeah as soon as you, you've got a group of drones talking to each other it increases the opportunity to breach into it and take control yeah the um the key counter to facial recognition is by disguising your face. So there's been photos going around recently because of the protests in Hong Kong. Um, people have been designing makeup patterns and hairstyles that are supposed to break up your face enough that the facial recognition can't lock onto you. Mm-hmm. And if you just want to beat a regular uh, camera, just get a bunch of infrared LEDs and make a a mask of them because regular cameras are sensitive to infrared light. You don't even need a bunch of them. Um, if you wear glasses and you just have a couple of um, infrared lights put out, like just emitting out on the edges of the glasses, that disrupts any facial recognition and you just become a blind spot on your face. Yeah, that's the scary thing with facial recognition. It's becoming like the next um, speed traps. Well, funny you, you might mention that um, because the Chinese have actually been using facial recognition security camera systems 
as part of their um, policing methods for catching people jaywalking. So can you imagine like um, people employing um, jam- jamming weapons, um, not jamming weapons, um, jamming programs into drones in the near future? Um, I think it's easier to just utilise other methods which render them ineffective. I think it was the Dutch police were training attack birds to take down drones. Yeah. And someone else was testing a drone with a, a net attached to it so that they could fly in and scoop up hostile drones. I know the, um, the Americans were working on something where they were looking at that sort of stuff because apparently the drug cartels were starting to use it to use drones to ship drugs across the border from Mexico or something like that. I saw in a documentary somewhere online and yeah. But is it, uh, so wait, you guys, so you guys think um, there's a double-edged sword using these drones in Scot- uh, especially in scenarios like these? Well, well this the thing is... Is, is it will stop people joining their own search party like that lady in Iceland. Yes. Um, it's also the fact that you got the um, it's being utilised to actually assist with finding people. It's not being used as spyware material sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's people using drones for a good purpose. Yes, they could easily be repurposed for a bad purpose. But Scotland, I think, is fairly low on the uh, countries with a risk of that. Yeah. But also, uh, the, one thing that I feel, the one thing I feel sorry for is all those volunteers. Like, imagine telling the volunteers, oh, you guys are not needed. We'll be using drones instead to find missing people. Um, I think they're going to be using both because it just increases the search area that can be covered a lot quicker. That's the, the, the thing. It's, so you still got police officers and all that out doing the search. So you're still going to need boots on the ground nearby operating the cameras. Hopefully it'll reduce the need for untrained volunteers. Yes. Because uh, untrained volunteers are really bad at actually doing search and rescue stuff. Yeah. Uh, okay. Anyways, uh, moving along, uh, Professor, you've got a story about uh, Take Two's hot take on next gen. I want to make it clear that pun wasn't mine. <laughs> mine would have been better. Ah, oh, I don't know. <laughs> the CEO of Take Two, the publisher and owner of uh, of Rockstar and a bunch of sporting games franchises. It's come out and said that he doesn't reckon that the next um, generation of consoles coming out next year are likely to increase the cost of development, which is a big news because uh, 20 years ago, every console had its own specific architecture and they'd have very weird experimental tech that's very hard to get your head around. The PlayStation 2 was notorious for having some really unusual. Um, hardware but now they've um they reckon the next gen won't increase the cost that much because it's not a massive break away from previous designs consoles these days are more like modern pcs than game consoles which is another interesting point he says that um, pc is 40 to 50 percent of their revenue 10 years ago it was only one or two percent wait what yeah that, no yeah. what no way there, that's that sounds like a bald-faced lie. I mean, ooh, hang on, I, hang on. 
have you got any data to disprove him there? I'm, I, I, well, I don't really have hard, hard data to, to, uh, to prove him there. But like from, from our experiences, like PC games have been the forefront within, in the entertainment sector. Like look at, for example, um, the Warcraft games, for example. Yeah, but that's not, they're not his games. He said for his studio. No, I think he's saying games, PC games in general. No. I, I, all right. Professor, can you please clarify? The quote here says, when we consider a console release. But the expected trend from extrapolating from that data is that the rest of the, um, the, rest of the, well, the other platforms have a similar breakdown, which I think he's exaggerating a bit. But it is true that PC was a smaller segment of the market up until five or ten years ago. Because you had games like Diablo and... Uh... Yeah, they're hugely popular. No one's saying they're not. It's just that the console market was a bigger slice of the revenue, especially for Take-Two, because so many of their games are sports games that don't release on PC. Yeah. See, I was thinking, I, I was thinking more along the lines of like when you had PC games like StarCraft and... Starcraft, and... Warcraft, and all those. I know, yeah, they they were popular then, but they also took, and then they took a lot more revenue. I was assuming then. Well, the other thing with Starcraft is that it's an RTS, which is a less popular genre anyway. Yeah. Like all your examples are less popular genres. They're very popular in that genre, but compared to shooter games, they're less popular. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. I agree with you there. Yeah. But uh, my other key takeaway from the article is that he reckons it's the first time that there will be a transition without someone going bankrupt, which I'm not sure if he means developers or hardware vendors, because um, with console releases, there's always been a bit of a, a boom and bust cycle and that a major vendor will go out of business fairly frequently because they didn't make enough sales. But the um, I'm not really sure how developers tie into transitions between console generations. I've well, never the, really thought about it before. Well, I think developers will be more afraid of the whole uh, cross-platform uh, stuff, right? Nah, now. Developers love cross-platform. It's the consoles holding it back. Because uh, okay. if you can play Halo on a PlayStation, you've got no reason to buy an Xbox. Microsoft wants you to buy an Xbox to play Halo then they get the double dip they get mm-hmm. money for the xbox which is sold fairly close to cost but they also get revenue from you buying copies of halo but with and the pro- by locking you into the xbox your friends will buy xboxes to play with you which more money yeah so making so basically exclusives sell more than cross platforms that's their that's their point of view no it's that they can make more money a cross-platform will sell more copies because it's a more available. Yeah. But Microsoft makes no money off a copy of a game sold on a PlayStation. I was going to say that a coding would be pretty game coding would be pretty diff, would be pretty hard as a game developer if you're switching codes from um, PlayStation Deck uh, Xbox to PlayStation. But yeah, that's the other advantage of newer consoles being closer to PCs. You've got that sort of standardized hardware that is really easy to port games to. It's why you can get an engine like Unity and export to any console, any platform, really. But 
in the past, making a cross-platform game was basically impossible. You had to start again because the architecture was so different. It'd be interesting as well when it comes to like um, game hardware designers on the game PC game PC hardware in terms of um, like because PC PC hardware always is always um, evolutionary in terms of processors, game GPUs, and but PC hardware is always backwards compatible. Yeah, mm-hmm. to an extent, there is starting to become some generational crossovers on some of the older systems. Yeah, but yeah. Um, so what, what's the main takeaway from this that you reckon we need to consider? Well, it's great news for indie developers. If the cost of, um, of developing for a platform keeps going down, it's going to be easier for indies to break into the console market, which has been hampered in the past by unique architectures and also uh, licensing fees. Yeah. So you'll hear sure. of indie games not getting updated on consoles because or getting one big update a year, because uh, Microsoft, I think, has a, a, a cost to release any patch. Uh, so we could be playing um, an Aspie Life on PlayStation in the near future. Well, you have to get a mate to fix it up for you. Anyone going to give him a call? <laughs> Brad? <laughs> we want more. <laughs> No, give us more. <laughs> back in your cage. <laughs> David Cage, back in your cage. <laughs> how many people uh, did I, how many people did I trigger in that one passage? <laughs> more than enough. Oh dear God. <laughs> so as a game developer yourself, so what's your view on this article in general? Well, I want it to be easier to develop on consoles. Because even though I'm a PC master racer, the um, yeah. did you just say you're a PC master eraser? Master eraser. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm trying to work out how you could be a master eraser. But anyway, um, <laughs> even though PC is clearly the superior platform, and consoles cannot hand a, hold a candle to it. It's nice to be able to reach the console fanboys and show them a taste of what they're missing. <laughs> oh, Bucky's just... And even... if you have any death threats for me, my name is the DJ. Oh! <laughs> hey, 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 hey. Identity theft is a crime, Professor. I'm not stealing anyone's identity. I'm the DJ. No, you're not. You're the Professor. Who are they going to believe, you or me? Well, they'll, be- they'll believe the victim. <laughs> And I'm the victim. And nobody plays that part better than you. <laughs> so uh, things, things are looking good for gaming, is what we, we, we can say here. I think so. Cool. Anyway, so for our final topic, um, MGM is announcing that they'll be shutting down Stargate Command, which, was, um, an orig- which is the original streaming platform for Stargate franchise. It opened up in twenty in the twenty seventeen, and uh, they've in a post they basically said that they'll be shutting down the service on New Year's Eve at twelve p.m. And this shutdown will also affect the Stargate Command apps and Stargate Command websites, and all the stuff will be from Stargate Command will be transferring to YouTube. Oh, so it's going to free access? 
Yeah, pretty much. Oh wow, I um, I missed that when I skimmed the article. I'm very happy about that because I remember being told about Stargate Command back when it started and thinking I'm going to have to get in on that. But if it's going to be on YouTube, I can procrastinate another year. <laughs> and and the be- the better part is that all the stuff that was all access pass whole, um, all access pass is also included. Yeah, so and shows... you will be refunded if you um have the all access pass. Yeah, and some people are pretty happy. Like for example, uh, Stargate writer Joseph um, Lozzi, he sees he states that the big picture offers a more positive message, and he also hinted that uh, he might be available to return to Stargate and help run a new show. So that's going to be interesting. So I'm just getting up YouTube, finding Stargate Command. It doesn't come out till next year. <laughs> Link's yeah. already live. I just checked. Oh, okay. Oh, nice. You can nice. subscribe to that channel, but I expect the um they won't have all the content up until later. Yeah. No. Um, they've only, they've got a few bits and pieces up already. Oh, I've like such as a Brad Wright um interview. I've just read through it again in more detail, and they say some content. They won't be moving full episodes to YouTube. Oh. So, how many hours of Stargate content are there? Not enough. Is there enough that if I binge watch from now until New Year's Eve, I could get through it by then? Now, when you say Stargate, are you talking just SG-1, Atlantis, or... you got five seasons for Stargate Atlantis, then you got um, Stargate SG-1, which was... 11 or 12 seasons and then you got um i can't remember the name of the spaceship one um which that was only one season or two seasons but um did you want to do anything else in between that time well i'm gonna need to eat occasionally but (laughs) you can do that while watching it's interesting though guys because um it i think it's, it's a good time to move from Stargate Command as a website itself to YouTube because... uh... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Uh, from what I've heard, um, when it was initially launched, they had a lot of technical glitches at the time. So uh, uh, what was it, for example? Uh, the site was the first access. Oh, they had trouble logging in and... Uh, Users who initially signed up for Stargate Command starting Wednesday were not receiving their login details. Yeah, that happens with every new service, though. It's embarrassing, but it's kind of expected these days because no one does any testing. Because QA departments cost money, and why would you do that when you can just get your users to test? Yeah, they were high, uh, they were having um high traffic in and the servers were, yeah. fall, were falling apart. That too. Yeah, because no one ever plans ahead for high like for launch day traffic well enough that's actually where amazon web services came from because amazon had to plan ahead so so much um 
server space for their big like Christmas sales and stuff that it was just sitting idle the rest of the year. So they started renting it out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as I was saying earlier, Joseph Malozzi wrote a, wrote a, wrote on his blog post about the uh, move. And he's basically, he's um, basically saying that uh, alas, while sad in principle that the site dedicated to Stargate shutting down, I think the big picture offers a more positive message. Uh, the content will be free, will be available worldwide. Respectfully, cost and accessibility were the biggest concerns I hear fans expressing the, uh, regarding the site, which was $20 uh, on launch day. Yeah, one time okay. tw- yeah, $20 subscription, you get all 350 episodes and the three movies as well. Okay, well, I'm not sure if um, that came through on the recording or not, but uh, we are having some technical difficulties with the voice server tonight, so apologize if there's any roboting. I promise you the only robot here is the DJ. What do you guys think, though? Like, moving all the content to YouTube, though? I mean... If they move all the content, then it, that'll be good. Um, like, just for SG1, um, that's 10 seasons, uh, 20 episodes per season from memory. And each episode was usually 45 minutes to an hour long. So... Um, yeah, you're looking what 200 hours plus the movies and then Stargate Atlantis. That's hey, it'd be good to see that there's something worth watching on YouTube. Yeah, and it's good for MGM as well in terms of it could bring back some interest, maybe uh, bring back some, maybe make a new show in, in essence. Another Stargate series. Would you want it? Would you want one? Yes. Yeah, but here's my problem with YouTube though YouTube is just it's a dying it's a dying site even though with all the adpocalypse and and the whatnot though that's my biggest concern with youtube in general but is it really dying like you, you've said this before but it's still going yeah yeah i i do i do agree yeah i have been saying it for a while and it's not it's dying but it's not really dying as at a colossal speed that's well, if it goes off of there, there'll be something that like if YouTube dies, there'll be something that replaces it, and I'm sure the content will end up somewhere. Yeah, that's true. But what do you think, guys? You so you'll be big. So you, I'm assuming you'll be watching the whole thing, whole whole Stargate series back to back. I don't know this... about back to back, but yeah, I'll check it out. Yeah, you reckon? How do you think Netflix and all the binge watching channels would be would react to this though? Netflix doesn't care. They've made it clear that they're pivoting to um, their own content. Mm-hmm. Because it's interesting, though, because Netflix used to be famous for the binge-watching culture. And now, with recently, with Netflix saying they're going to abandon the binge-watching culture, it's and YouTube now, and now Stargate going to YouTube, it's kind of like, okay, we're going to bring back, we're going to revive the binge-watching culture. Um, I'm not really sure where the binge watching culture is going. Um, I can't see it disappearing anytime soon because honestly, it was around before um, Netflix came along because people would get hold of um, different TV series that they've been wanting to watch on DVD or video and sit down and watch them all. And I say, oh, I'm just going to watch one episode, <laughs> and then. Next thing 30. you know, they've watched the entire series. 30 hours later. 
I know about 30 hours later. Although the the only the other downside to um, moving all the content from all the content from from one website to another is basically uh, having okay. discussion on the fan site. Well, there's discussion aspects to um, YouTube where people can post comments and talk. And then there's Facebook groups for Stargate and all that as well. Yeah, but it's not really like like there'll be like you know how um, when you got the fan sites there'll be like it's just for the Stargate fans, but when you go to YouTube, it'd be like, yeah, yeah, but you do get the odd discussion or two in certain comments, but most of it would just be like, yeah, this episode was so shit, or yeah, this episode was terrible, don't watch it and stuff. Is that not what 90% of the discussion on a fan base is? Isn't it it though? I mean, like fan bases, you would get like a good discussion or two. What else are you going to talk about? Technical, um... Shows technical stuff like the lighting, the editing, the uh, cinematography. I'll just go to Reddit. Fair enough. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, most, most of the most of the um, Stargate fans, similar to groups such as um, is it the Melbourne Melbourne Browncoats we met last year at Supernova, Professor? Yeah. Um, they have their own communities that are strong and proud and looking out for each other and talking on a regular basis um i'm sure if you go look around on facebook you'll find a few and then there's others that are just they they know each other and they catch up and talk okay okay um anyway so moving along uh what have you what have you been playing buck i've continued playing call of duty world war Two. Oh, very nice very nice it is how are you finding it so far um, I'm just continuing on with the main mission and trying to limit myself to one section at a time, like one one stage sort of thing at a time, and just to make it last a bit more. And yeah, I'm enjoying it. Um, I have to have to say thank you to Professor for saying to shoot the um, flamethrower tank. Um, yep, that was quite a good move. <laughs> very nice, very nice. It was, it was enjoyable watching the um, Nazi. Jumping up and down and in the flames. Yeah, they don't enjoy being on the end of that, do they? No, it was kind of. I have to say, the Molotov cocktail into a machine gun next was quite good too. So, have you found any more flaws in the game, or? Flo- There's lots of flaws in the game, and ceilings and walls, <laughs> stairs. I meant in the game. Yeah, in the game. There's. There's floors, there's walls, there's ceilings, stairs. <laughs> okay, what's the biggest flaw in the game, maybe, besides... Oh, issues, you mean? Yes. Ah. Um, just a little bit of lag, but that could just be the fact that I've got an old computer system that I'm operating and playing over my phone on Wi-Fi probably isn't the best, but yeah. So you guys still having problems with the multiplayer aspect? Because I did remember last week you guys saying that you guys said that multiplayer was a bit of an issue as well. I didn't say it. I haven't looked at it. I haven't bothered. Well, I got into um, I got into the multiplayer, and I've been playing the zombies mode. Oh. Uh, the net code's peer to peer, so it's got got issues. Mostly, it's all right. But uh, I tried playing earlier tonight, and I got paired with someone with absolutely awful internet. It wasn't me. <laughs> was it the Chinese? No, he was Aussie. Ah, oh, nuts. <laughs> but, so, uh, so, so you were playing Nobby, were you? 
No. Oh. I play David Tennant. <laughs> yes, David Tennant is a character in Zombies. Oh, nice. Yep. So how many hours have you guys been um, playing so far? Um, I'm not really sure. I think I got like five, six. Not sure. I haven't looked. Um, by the way, Professor, with the zombies um section, so what's the best part about the zombies level? David Tennant. Besides David Tennant? Uh, it's, well, I like that there's a bit of a objective mode. So the very loose plot is that you're, uh, you know the movie The Monument Men? Yeah. You're those guys. Oh, nice. And you're being attacked by zombies for whatever reason because that's a thing that happens in Germany in World War Two. And um, so you start off trying to break into a bunker and then building super weapons using ancient medieval artifacts and curses and stuff. I haven't managed to finish the uh, the campaign yet, but um, well, not the campaign, the objectives of that map. But it is uh, it does add a bit of um, a bit of a goal to it. Hmm. So, what have you been playing, DJ? Well, oh, I, I haven't been playing anything. I know, I know, what? I've been pretty slack. Uh, I know, Bucky, lay it on me. <laughs> you can lay it on me. Such a disappointment. <laughs> Uh, Look, it's like we're not paying you because you're seriously letting us down. <laughs> hey, I have assignments. What can I say? I think we're going to have to give him a pay cut. So does Buck. <laughs> Buck has assignments. <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but I have other things I have to do. Yeah. Um, okay, so moving along, we have our shout-outs. And on the 4th of November, 1922, in Egypt, British archaeologist Howard Carter and his men find the entrance to Tutankhamun's tomb in the Valley of Kings. Thus began a monumental excavation process in which Carter carefully explored the four-room tomb over several years, uncovering an incredible collection of several thousand objects. The most splendid architectural find was a stone sarcophagus containing three coffins. Hmm? Architectural find? Yeah. So you found a building? Yeah. Well, he's not wrong. He's not right either, though. I think he meant archaeological find. Oh, do, yeah, it is an archaeological find, but somehow the source materials say architectural as well, so I'm going, what the hell? Uh... Yeah. So the most spectacular, splendid archae- architectural and archaeological find was a stone sarcophagus containing three coffins nested within each other. Inside the final coffin, which was made from solid gold, was the mummy of the boy king, Tutankhamun, preserved for more than 3,000 years. Most of these tr- treasures are, n- are now housed in the Cairo Museum. Um, on the 4th of November 1942, disobeying a direct order by Hitler, General Field Marshal, Marshal Erwin Rommel begins a retreat of his forces after a costly defeat during the Second Battle of El Am- Alamein. The, re- the uh, retreat would ultimately last five months. The Allied victory in the Second Battle of Al-Amin was a huge morale boost after a long period of attrition in North Africa, and it made a national hero out of General Montgomery. Um, Just wish to apologize for all those veterans and the families of the veterans. It was Al-Amin, not not Al-Amin. Thank you. You Al-Amined to say Al-Amin. What? I think he's trying to be funny. I know. It's not working. That's a smile. It's still better name. than your pun. 
Let's just smile and walk back and nod our heads. You'll never get away from me. You're still not. It doesn't. You being scary and funny is not working today. <laughs> On the fourth of November, nineteen seventy-three, the Netherlands experienced the first car-free Sunday caused by the nineteen seventy-three oil crisis. Highways are used only by cyclists and roller skaters. Well, were they only used by cyclists and roller skaters, or were were they pedestrians and other people as well? Oh, mainly cyclists and roller skaters. Some even took horses as well. That would be cool. Imagine riding a horse in the middle of a highway in the Netherlands. That would be <laughs> that would be pretty cool. I could handle that. Uh, so now on to our remembrances. On the 4th of November, 1992, George Klein, um, Hamilton, Ontario-born Canadian inventor who was often called the most productive inventor in Canada in the 20th century. His inventions include key... Co- um, include key contributions to the first electric wheelchairs for quadriplegics, the first micro-staple gun, the ZEEP uh, nuclear reactor, which was the precursor to the CANDU um, reactor, the uh, International System for Classifying Ground Cover Snow, Air Skis, the Weasel Air Terrain Vehicle, the STEM antenna for the space program, and the Canada Ar- the Canada Arm. Um, he died at the age of 88 in Ottawa, Ontario. Um, little side note here, the Canada Arm is actually still in use on the International Space Station and is being, was being utilised to capture and dock the supplies that were being sent there um, just recently. Oh, okay. So, yeah, he, he's, his technology is still in use. Yeah, that's awesome. Like, he was the first person to develop the, to develop the electric wheelchair. Was he the first person? Well, what, I think he was one of the developers, but yeah, key contributions to electric wheelchair. Um, on the 4th of November 2008, Michael Crichton, um, American author, screenwriter, and film director and producer, best known for his work in the science fiction, thriller, and medical, act- medical fiction genres. His books have sold over 200 million copies worldwide, and over a dozen have been adapted into films. His literary works are usually within the action genre and heavily feature technology. His novels epitomize the techno-thriller genre of literature, often exploring technology and failures of human interactions with it, and especially resulting in catastrophes with biotechnology. Many of his novels have medical or scientific underpinnings reflecting his medical training and scientific background. He wrote, among, among other works, Congo, Sphere, Jurassic Park, Rising Sun, and The Lost World. Um, films he wrote and directed include Westworld, Coma, The Great Train Robbery, Looker, and Runaway. Uh, he died from lymphoma at the age of 66 in Los Angeles, California. Do you guys have a favorite Michael Crichton movie? I would say Congo. Congo? I'll be a professor. Well, it's a book, but Prey is pretty good. Huh. Mine will still be Jurassic Park. Nothing beats Jurassic Park. Uh, and on the 4th of November 2014, uh, S. Donald Stuckey, American inventor. Uh, he had 60 patents in his name related to glass and ceramics. Some patents solely his and others share the joint patents with other inventors. His discoveries and inventions have contributed to the development of ceramics, eyeglasses, sunglasses, cookware, defense systems, and electronics. He was a research director at Corning Glassworks for 47 years, doing R&D and research in glass and ceramic development. His inventions include photoform, Corning, uh, Corningware, 
Circor Pyroceram and photochrom photochromic ophthalmic glass eyewear. He died at the age of 99 in Rochester, New York. Uh, and our famous birthdays, we on the 4th of November 1925, Doris Roberts, an American actress, author, and philanthropist whose career spanned six decades of television and film. She received five Emmy Awards and a Screen, Guilders, Screen Actors Guild Award during her acting career, which began in 1951. Uh, she achieved continued success in television, becoming known as known for her role as Ray, Raymond Baroni's mom, uh, Maria Baroni, on the long-running CBS sitcom Everybody Loves Raymond. She was born in St. Louis, Missouri. Do you guys all love that series? I'm a bit young for it. I enjoyed watching it. She, uh, I like her. I like how um, she doesn't use the thermometer. She uses her lips to see uh, to, to to see whether she whether um she's sick. I'd assume that makes sense in context. Oh, uh, to check your temperature, she kiss you on the forehead. Yep. <laughs> um, on the fourth of November, nineteen thirty-three, Sir Charles Coyne Cow, a phys physicist and electrical engineer who pioneered the development and the use of fiber optic in telecommunication. In the 1960s, Carl created um, various methods to combine glass fibers in, with lasers to, in order to transmit digital data, which laid the groundwork for the evolution of the internet. Known as the godfather of broadband, the father of fiber optics, and the father of fiber optic communication, Carl was a, a, awarded the 2009 Nobel Prize in Physics for groundbreaking achievements concerning the transmission of light in Fibers for Optical Communication. He was born in Shanghai. Um, 4th of November 1953, Peter Lord, uh, English animator, film producer, director, and co-founder for the Academy Award-winning Ardman Animation Studio, an animation firm best known for its clay animated films and shorts, particularly those featuring plasticine duo Wallace and Gromit. He, was, he also directed The Pirates in an Adventure with uh, scientist, which was nominated the best animated feature at the 85th Academy Awards. Lord is the executive producer of every Ardman work, including Chicken Run, Arthur Christmas, and Flushed Away. He was born in Bristol. Do you guys? I, don't, I don't want to be a pie. I don't like gravy. <laughs> Did you guys ever like the Wallace and Gromit series? Yep. Is that the dumbest question you've ever asked? No. I thought you were too young for it as well, Professor. No, not for that. How can you be too young to enjoy Wallace and Gromit? Because didn't they came out like 1994 with the... Uh, Doesn't uh, matter. Hmm? It's, it's still a popular show now. Yep. It's like Shaun the Sheep. You never you never pick on Wallace and Gromit, you never pick on Shaun the Sheep. Have you, uh, I've heard as well there might be a Chicken Run sequel coming out soon after after so many years. They've been talking about it for a while, though, haven't they? Yeah, they have. There were talks about that about it, but nothing came into fruition. I mean, you would think like after like years and years after the movie, they would be like, "Nah, we're not going to make a sequel. It's no use." Oh, don't count your eggs before they're hatched. Ah, uh, I see what you did there. That's good. I was a bit. Sure. I was going to be worried you might be scrambled. And uh, that's all we have for tonight. <laughs> Go away, fuck. <laughs> Oh my god, Buck's on, Buck's on a roll. But you don't want to poach that one? <laughs> Buck's on a roll. And an egg roll, may I say. Uh, 
anyways, um, events of interest on the 4th of November, 1847, Sir James Young Simpson, a Scottish phys- physician, uh, discovers the anesthetic properties of chloroform. On inhaling the chemical, they found that a general mood of cheer and humor had set in, but suddenly all of them collapsed only to gain consciousness the next morning. Simpson knew as soon as he woke up that he found that he had found something that could be used as an anesthetic. I love how they used to test stuff on themselves. <laughs> it's funny, after he tested it on himself, he tested it on his niece. Yeah, I think the guy who discovered artificial sweetener was working in the lab, spilled something on his hands, and realized later that everything he ate tasted sweet. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's kind of like um, first year lab students follow all the safety procedures, wearing all the all the all the special safety gear and gloves and everything like that. But they have to clean up spilt water. It's like they go for hazmat protocols. Third year science lab students <laughs> spill spill a bit of. Um, Mercury on the bench. They just wipe it up with a tissue. <laughs> wow! Talk about talk about like being um, disillusioned. Then uh, oh, I don't know about being disillusioned. It's just a bit of complacency and a bit of um, familiarity. Because isn't it like normally when you're first first year, it's just like you're sprightly, you're hopeful for the future, and then when you reach third year, it's just like all hope's gone. You know, it's just. You're like a you're like a veteran veteran in the war kind of thing. Like, uh, why do why do I even bother? No, because you you re- you're seeing that light of hope at the end of the tunnel. Isn't that fourth year? That's only if you're doing a four year degree. Ah, yeah, good point. Uh, anyways, uh, moving along. On the fourth of November, nineteen sixty, Mary Leakey and Louis Leakey uh, um, discover first Homo habilis jaw fragment, um, OH seven also nicknamed Johnny's Child, at Old Duvet Gorge, Tanzania. The remains are dated to approximately 1.75 million years and consist of fragmented parts of a lower mandible, an isolated maxillary molar, two peritoneal bones, and and 21 finger, hand, and wrist bone. And finally, on the 4th of November 1977, The Incredible Hulk. An American television series based on the Marvel Comics character The Hulk premiered on CBS. It starred Bill Bixby as Dr. David Bruce Banner, Lou Ferrigno as The Hulk, and Jack Colvin as Jack McGee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the, uh, it's interesting with the uh, the plot in the TV series, though, how it's um, it's they don't say like what was the origin of this, what was the origin of The Hulk in that one. Oh, they say it was an um, experiment that had gone wrong. Memory, it's well since I last watched it. But I like the fact that um, I think it was the Eric Banner Hulk movie. They actually had um, Lou Ferrigno in the uh, in a cameo appearance alongside uh, Stan Lee, but they didn't do that with the other ones. I thought that's a bit rude. They could have still made the effort since he helped to build up that character. I think Lou Ferrigno still does the voice for Hulk, but he's not credited, which is pretty sad. I mean, come on. But the other interesting thing with the Hulk with the Hulk um, series is that um, in his travels, like Banner earns money by temporarily working jobs. But in in like the other series, it's basically, oh, I'm just a doctor. I'm just doing doctor things. That's it. No. Well, you didn't. Um, 
I mean, in the Avengers, for example, he's a he's a doctor in India. That's all he does. Like, but in um, uh, I think it was the second one where he was in. I can't remember who, who was it. He played the Hulk there, but he's in oh, Brazil. Ed, oh, Ed Norton. Um, Ed Norton. Yeah, he's in Brazil working in a modeling plant, and then at the end he goes out and he's just he's volunteering as a doctor in remote areas, and he says. I'm I'm getting hungry. You won't like me when I'm hungry. Can you imagine Lou Ferrigno? Uh, imagine doing a live action Hulk um, TV series again. Yeah. I don't think they do it in the same way that they used to because they do too much CGI now compared to what they used to. And and, and let's not forget uh, there are thin margins when when making a TV series. Nobody said that. Thin margins on making a TV series. I was on making movies. I oh, know, I know. I was just trying to play on. I'm just trying oh, to play on. You, you were trying to be funny. Uh-huh. Oh. Anyways, uh, that's it for this week. Um, we have anything? We have anything to say before we end the show? Um, well, when this comes out, um, we'll have been at Supernova. So if you stop by the booth and said hello, um, it was great meeting you. Um. Otherwise, yeah, remember to take care of yourselves, look out for each other, and stay hydrated. See you guys. We'll see you next week. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.